So we've been talking about ideas and concepts and the way they, the place they have and the impact they have on the possibilities uh, for sensing the soul. And we talked uh, some about the different ways that we receive legacy of a legacy of ideas uh, kind of mixture of ideas from the past and the influence that has on uh, on the possibilities of our experience and our conception um, we talked also about the possibility of other ideas um, it, it, rather than limiting our experience opening up uh, our experience, and that's a little bit what I'd like to continue exploring. Um, and we talked also about the possibility of, of actually questioning ideas, um, so to to open the realm of possibilities for us. We uh, talked also about certain ideas that we can uh, kind of open up a bit more uh, again to open the. Uh, range of possibilities available to us. Talked too about the, the uh, possibility to, to listen uh, or, or read or whatever uh, and uh, listen for ideas. Um, so this isn't some big intellectual exercise. There's ideas flying around all the time. Um, and listening for ideas and then lingering with an idea um, if it feels like something about it that speaks to you, speaks to the soul. And then that lingering, that listening and lingering is, is giving those uh, potential seeds of ideas a, a place um, in, in the soul womb, a place uh, in the soil. It's planting them in the soil and perhaps reflecting on them is turning that soil to um, uh, nourish the seed more so that it might give rise to it, might suggest, it might open out into uh, a way of looking or a range of ways of looking and sensing, sensing with soul. We also mentioned the uh, important place for the emotions uh, in all this. When we're talking about ideas and the place of ideas in sensing with soul and the importance of ideas in sensing with soul, those ideas are, again, not abstract. They are um, connected to, informing and informed by, shaping and shaped by, uh, and grounded on the emotions uh, that are in our heart. So there's a, a necessary place and a necessity uh, when we talk about ideas uh, giving rise to or helping seed uh, any kind of sensing with soul. The emotions are there uh, included, wrapped up, interwoven with that. So we talked about, for example, emotions like devotion and devotional yearning and just the general fact of uh, it needing to matter. This idea needs to matter because this way of looking matters to me, to my soul, right now, to my sense of existence. So that sense of mattering, we could say that's, that's an affect, partly, um, an emotional condition. It's also a soul condition. But that water of the emotions is like when watering the seeds um, so that these seeds uh, can come alive, the ideas can come alive again and uh, spring forth, suggest uh, sensing the soul.
And, of course, uh, implicit in a lot of what we've been saying for a few years is that practicing sensing the soul, opening to those kinds of experiences, also opens our ideation, it opens our conception, it expands our ideas about things um, and uh, um, our conceptions of them. It, it, it gives rise also to new ideas. New ideas, different ideas that we haven't had before, sometimes we've never heard before. The very perceptual experience, the very sensual experience of sensing the soul, um, gives rise at time to uh, gives rise at times to new ideas, or expands our range of um, kind of possible ideation in regard to something or other, some or other aspect of existence. Now, all that is implicit just because of the way the soul-making dynamic works. We've talked about that in the interfusion, the um, interweaving, the interinsemination of the eros, psyche, logos. Um, uh, elements of the dynamic, the uh, enriching, deepening, widening, uh, complicating, um, uh, and making manifold of the image of the psyche aspect, what we're calling the psyche aspect, the image, the sense of, if you like, the, the sense of something or other, in the expansion of that, that after after some time, it's uh, as we said, the logos is a little more slow to move generally. But as that keeps happening, um, we keep opening up to different images and different aspects. And that that whole imaginal range, the range of sensing the soul, the perception of things, all kinds of things, um, starts expanding more and more. And it impacts us. It impacts the soul. It registers, that, and this feels important, and this feels beautiful, and this feels meaningful, and this gives another dimension, and we sense a kind of truth in that, a kind of truth. Anything and everything uh, and this, this sensing with soul can touch, and so the idea of any and everything uh, will be uh, gradually uh, expanded, uh, gradually filled with um, new possible ideas. Not uh, again, in, 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 in the wider uh, conception of possible plurality of truths, perceptions of the truth. So not this, um, only this and not that, but this and that. This way of seeing, this way of conceiving, and that way of conceiving. In the um, embrace of a, a pluralistic understanding, uh, the generosity of a pluralistic understanding of truth. But with sensing the soul will begin to impact our conceptions of, of what is real and what is true. Over time, it, it, it expands that. And part of... Uh, so that's a, that's a really important point. That's a general point that I want to make today. And, um, and part of, a, uh, of what it... Uh, so as I said, it will, the sensing the soul will impact the ideas, expand the ideas of any and everything that gets involved with soul. It becomes an erotic object, an erotic be- imaginal beloved. And anything at all, uh, whether it's we can see it as part of us, or material, or someone else, or uh, whatever. And included in that, um, in that um, fertilization uh, and expansion of the ideas of uh, 
what things are and ideas about things, it, uh, that includes um, ideas about, about the earth, about where we are, about these surroundings, um, and ideas about nature, and also ideas about body and materiality. Now we've placed, so this is where I want to start with this ideas about body and, uh, and then a little bit about earth and nature, but we've talked a lot about body, place a lot of emphasis on it, a lot of emphasis on practicing with that kind of uh, sensitivity to the whole energy body. And stressed as one of the aspects of the imaginal that might help to um, move things along, to open things out further into, uh, further along the spectrum of what we call, might call the spectrum of the imagination towards more fully, authentically, genuinely imaginal. Uh, we've, we've pinpointed one of those aspects being the whole energy body awareness. That kind of poise and sensitivity uh, and consciousness that pervades uh, the body that way. And one of the things we said at some point, uh, probably a few times, is that doing that is is one of the uh, things that can help transform, um, transmute craving into eros. The problem of craving into the gift of eros, the bounty, the opening uh, of eros, and the gift and the opening of what it brings. Um, so that, again, with the awareness of the whole energy body, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a constituent um, of the wider approach that it's a necessary uh, element in supporting the soul-making, supporting the sensing the soul. As we're aware of the energy body that way, and things, uh, and the sensing the soul is is then opened um, in in any moment, and we linger with that, then then not just uh, then one of the things that kind of happens as as the sense sensing the soul begins to spread or to include and embrace and touch more aspects of our experience in that moment, it will uh, it can and will start to include. Um, the body as an imaginal body. And as we're starting just with energy body awareness, which is just a kind of a kind of way of paying attention to our body, and as the sensing the soul um, gets established and opens out, and in its opening out, the body then becomes imaginal. Uh, as as one aspect of that, that's a possibility. Uh, and what 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 does it mean to sense the body imaginally? imaginal perception of the body. And, and again, that has going to have all those uh, aspects to it that we outlined in the first course, uh, first talk of this course. Now, sometimes we can actually start with deliberately imagining the body um, alongside the, the, the sort of energy body awareness. We can start with um, a, a deliberate imagining of the body. Even if it doesn't feel imaginal at first, um, it might... Um, it might become imaginal when we have the energy body awareness and we just start to get into that image. Um, so, uh, for instance, um, one could sometimes uh, ignite an opening into the imaginal, an opening into a wider sensing of the soul by just 
settling into the body, in other words, being with the felt sense of the energy body, and then maybe lightly, uh, um, lightly with that sense, and then deliberately imagining the body in a certain way. So it could be anything, a body of, uh, a body of blue light, for instance, um, with the contours uh, that this body has, but it's made of blue light and it has that texture and that substance and that appearance. And it might be that as I resonate with that um, deliberately imagined image, it becomes imaginal uh, as I, and I can support it doing that, that uh, doing it that way. Um, in, and in that, then, the, the world and the sense of self and perhaps others as well will become imaginal in the usual way that the cosmopoiesis spreads when there's imaginal perception. So that's one thing that's worth trying, is just actually deliberately um, imagining the body um, a certain way and seeing if it becomes imaginal. Um, because once it becomes imaginal, there's a set, the, the, the impactful experience of the imaginal in general, and sensing the soul, eventually, or with a, with a kind of slower pace to it, a slower tempo to it, begins pushing at the edges of our, uh, of our logos, of individual things and our wider logos, our wider conceptual frameworks, and stretches them, or breaks them open, or enlarges them, etc. So this little thing that I just suggested, deliberately imagining uh, the body, um, it's interesting, when I said a body of blue light, that already implies a kind of uh, more ethereal register on the spectrum of the energy body from very solid to very ethereal. And I, I wonder, like for a lot of people, I think it will be easier then. Things are more labile, more easily moved, um, less tending to uh, kind of heaviness and stasis with the imagination and with the whole sense of it. So it might be that for many people it's easier um, when the body is perceived d- deliberately, uh, lightly that way, for then it to open into the imaginary. But it actually doesn't have to be. And we've stressed this several times, I want to re-stress it. So just as we can have an, uh, a, a sensing with soul of the body, as I think I shared the other day, um, the body sensed in, tuned in to the earth element. And this earth element is stone, it's hard, it's dense, it's, it's, it's got its kind of darkness to it, and it's somehow related to the cosmic stone um, that, that's um, around planets or, or on planets or whatever. And um, uh, it uh, begins to have this kind of cosmic earth element begins to have its own personhood and its own uh, way of perceiving and sensing its own kind of intelligence, very different than a typical human intelligence, of course. Um, But one could uh, start then this deliberate imagining with a much more... um, uh, you know, much more solid, dense uh, um, uh, image that's much more solid and dense on on the register there, uh, lower on the register, so to speak, less ethereal. Um, so play play with all of this and see see what happens, see what's possible. Um, would it work as well? This little exercise would it work um, if one's perceiving one's energy body um, ecstatically, so to speak, in in the original sense, meaning. Um, 
not in the same location, in the same space as the physical body. So sometimes I've described, you know, how sometimes I might feel my energy body um, joyfully turning cartwheels. It's as if it, it might be ten yards away. Um, doing, I'm still very aware of the physical sensations and where the physical body is, but it's as if I've got two body awarenesses at once, or flying, or, or whatever it is, of dancing. Um, so will this work if uh, one deliberately imagines uh, the energy body outside, uh, for instance, deliberately dancing or deliberately um, do, doing these kind of uh, ecstatic somersaults, etc.? Um, again, which is which is easiest? Whenever I talk about that body outside, I I don't think one ever loses touch with the um, the sense of what's uh, so to speak what, what the conventional perception is of where where the material body is, etc. But you can try um, as an experiment and see see is it easier this way or that way or both or only one. Uh, now we I mentioned at some point and I think it was in this series of talks that when we talk about um, any kind of body awareness any kind of mindfulness of body um, whether it's energy body awareness as we've been talking about but just mindfulness of the body or, or um, awareness of the body um, usually wrapped up uh, in that, what we're calling mindfulness of the body, awareness of the body, will be th- it will have three aspects or dimensions to it. <clears throat> One is the um, physical sense of the body. In in other words, what I, what I really mean by that is the kinesthetic sense. What's the felt sense of this space? What's the felt sense of the body? So I, we could call that kinesthetic. <clears throat> we'll also have. Uh, as a first aspect, we'll also have, as a second aspect, some kind of image of the body, some kind of image, um, some kind of uh, mental representation. It may be imaginal, but it may not be. Just sort of see or Im- imagine my body in space, even if my eyes are shut or whatever, how it's uh, com- comported, you know, what posture it's in, all that. And as a third aspect, it has an idea of what body is. There's some kind of logos operating there. Now, usually, uh, we don't give this much attention. We're not even that conscious of it. As I said, a lot of logoi, a lot of concepts and ideas are uh, subliminal, really. They're below the radar of our consciousness, and they're unquestioned a lot of the time. But there's always, with any um, moment of bodily awareness, there's a felt sense, a kinesthetic sense, some kind of image, and some kind of idea. The body is, for instance, my idea might be, the body is uh, made up of meaningless matter in some kind of very impressive arrangement that allows all this material matter to function together as a sort of very complex unit, etc. But it's essentially um, flatly conceived material matter. Even if, and still flat, even if we uh, look at it in terms of systems theory, if some of you know that, that it gives, it generates a sort of higher level organism, uh, organistic uh, unity, um, organic unity. Uh, It's still flat from our perspectives. 
in terms of what we're talking about. But there's there's always uh, these three aspects with any bodily awareness. But the important point what I want to say is it, one of them is the idea of the body, the ideas about body and matter, the concepts that are operating which we may not be aware of at the time. And that's included um, any time we, as one of those three uh, aspects, whenever we um, uh, pay attention to the body, whenever we're aware of the body, even when we're not, it's not a deliberate mindfulness thing. Um, so, just to recap something, uh, again, I'm, I'm recapping quite a lot in this talk, but that's, uh, that's important. Um, so, why, why so much emphasis on the energy body? Um, and sometimes I know people have asked me, and it's very, even though I, I know that I've said it before, I've told them, it's very easy to forget. So, one reason is just that energy, the practice of the energy body, in the way that we're talking about it, um, gives so much help to practice. So we can use it as a resource um, through the cultivating of samadhi, the harmonization, the alignment, the opening that we might feel, and just dwelling in that, and really feeling this body, this physical space that I inhabit is a lot of the time for me a resource, a, 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 a source of nourishment, a source of well-being that's immensely useful. Um, but it's a, it can be a resource, this energy body awareness and energy body practice in other ways, um, helpful in the deepening and also the navigation of other practices. So, for example, metta. How do I know what's helpful right now in the metta as I um, subtly weave my metta practice and respond to what's going on? The energy body is telling me. Um, similarly with samadhi or compassion or emptiness practices and imaginal practice. Remember, that's one of the indicators that we're on the right track with an image, even if the mind is telling us, well, I don't know, this is kind of crazy. Um, also very helpful with um, emotional awareness practices, etc. Um, uh, in, in you know the cultivation of positive emotions and also the, the working with the difficult emotions. So all of that is just very practical help. But implicit in what I've said so far tonight is is another aspect of working with the energy body is that, again, over time, experience with the energy body and with uh, that kind of attunement and sensing the body that way will begin to re-enchant the body um, and through the body, the self. The body is, is always a, a, a primary, uh, at least connected with the self, whatever one's um, uh, conception of the self might be. Um, so involved in energy practice over time, one of the things it starts to do is re-enchant the body. Uh, through that sense, uh, which as I said, make, can make a felt, um, uh, that felt sense makes a deep impression. And um, we get the sense through energy body awareness, through paying attention in certain ways, we um, begin to get the sense or the impression of the body not as um, essentially just flat matter, just um, uh, a product of its genes, um, just um, a bunch of complex molecules kind of swarming around in interaction with each other. Yes, one can, as I said, in the spirit of plurality, in the generosity of plurality, um, entertain that conception and go along with it, etc. Um, so, you know, I take my medicine, 
I, I, uh, I, uh, I, well, I take my medicine, that says enough. Um, but uh, not just that. Over time, we've paid attention in a different way and been impacted by these experiences and just the repeated sense of, a, of well, a different sense of the body. So we can um, uh, sense the body um, not just as, as flat matter, but also somehow um, resonant, somehow having a spectrum of subtleties of vibration um, going into what we might call the more ethereal, as well as the more dense, um, somehow connected with light even, um, somehow, more importantly, um, connected and integrated with the cosmos, and not only in material ways. We get the sense, through the sensitivity of the energy body, we get the sense of this body, this energy body, meaning this body, meaning just this um, one of the, uh, as you might say, dimensions or the range of dimensions of this body, is somehow integrated into the cosmos and connected with the cosmos, but not only in material ways. And that sense of um, deeper and more beautiful and richer um, weaving in uh, become becomes more prominent. It's a it's a sense. It's an impression, and it begins to be an idea. Uh, so over this whole range, light to de- uh, you know ethereal to dense, um, whatever. Um, th- this uh, paying attention that way um, opens up the sense of the body, and as the body through this starts to become more. Um, uh, imaginally perceived, as I said earlier, then it can also start, it's as if body, and the matter of the body, and the organism of the body, starts to have its own soul. We can be um, in erotic relationship with this body, this body as beloved other. And in being ensouled that way, there's the intersubjectivity and the autonomy, and it starts to have, um, we start to sense that the body has its own intelligence its own perception. Again, by that, I don't just mean, wow, isn't it clever the way the body transports nerve signals from the brain to the end of the fingers, or transports, uh, you know, interchanges oxygen and carbon dioxide and alveoli in the lungs. Yes, that's pretty smart, but we're talking about a kind of its own subjectivities, its own dimension and kinds of knowing. Uh, That starts to open up. So in all this, as as practicing the energy body, as the body becomes imaginal, partly supported through energy body awareness, the idea of body opens up. Idea of bodies open up. So uh, experience influences idea, but as we've pointed out a lot, um, idea, conception, logos um, influences experience and opens it, or shapes it, or directs it, or limits it, colors it, uh, closes off certain avenues. And the concept, logos, idea of the body and materiality certainly affects our range of uh, experience and perception of body. So I shared that... um, little anecdote about being on retreat in the woods for 10 days in complete solitude and really practicing uh, a very um, a very fruitful but very kind of narrow Theravadan 
excuse me, um, uh, avenue of practice range with really going into the jhanas and um, and and you know very lovely and very very as I said fruitful. Um, but also so the Theravadin logos, a Theravadin um, fantasy in the background. I didn't have the words for it at the time. Um, and all that implicit in that Theravadin logos and fantasy is is a kind of um, only a partial interest in the body, only an interest in opening up certain perceptions of the body, and only for the sake of letting go of attachment to it. Um, so the body as foul and full of unclean um, substances and parts, the body as uh, a corpse, potential corpse, future corpse, the body as um, just the four elements, a kind of deconstructing to it's nothing but the four elements. Um, so this whole conceptual framework of um, the movement of, um, let's say, narrowly conceived Theravada Buddhism um, is is uh, framing and, and has an idea of the body a certain way and directs the attention in a certain way to the body. And indeed, that shaped um, my experience of it, and my perception of it when I caught sight of, my, of myself in my naked body in the mirror, in the woods there. Well, we could have, of course, uh, all kinds of ideas. So the, let's say, the um, mass-produced um, and mass-proliferated uh, uh, relationship to the body that that's kind of pushed um, in a lot of popular culture these days, where where it's a, it's a kind of obsession, but it's also kind of worry about one's um, appearance, and it's got to look this way or that way. And there's a kind of um, very very easy to have uh, judgment, self judgment, other judgment come into that, um, and and all the all the problem uh, that brings. Well, what's the conception of body? And, and again, it's set in a wider cosmological conception, as is the Theravadan one, uh, conception of body and, and uh, attention to body. This conception and attention to body in, let's say, um, popular culture in, in our society is also set in a wider cosmological context. So ideas, again, are connected. They nestle in each other, they feed each other back and forth, they support each other. Uh, another conception of the body could be, as some of you might know, um, uh, in, in tantric dharma and the practices they have there with their own with channels and, and um, drops of blood and semen and all, all, all this. It's a very different conception of body or uh, the kind of alchemy of, of those kind of tantric practices or a shamanic conception of body in some cultures, or, or indeed any indigenous culture. It's a very different, wider cosmological conceptual frame and different um, uh, a conception of body and materiality. And that will affect the experience. So, uh, we could give so many examples, but there's experience is shaped by the way of looking and part of the way of looking is conception whether we're aware of it or not so again I'm just saying in other words what I've said before but um, there's really this um, possibility seeing all this uh, to uh, open up the sense of the body and therefore the idea of the body which I know the body is like this it's like this. This is the reality. Um, 
But it, it, is it? Or is it only that? Are there other ways of experiencing and other ways of thinking? So back to hermeneutics, the interpretation of matter, the interpretation of body as part of the interpretation of existence. Remember, hermeneutics originally meant the interpretation of sacred texts. But the wider, um, as philosophers went into all this, they realized, well, well, actually, we're talking about everything. So ideas are connected. So we actually interpret our cosmos uh, all the time. All the time. And hermeneutics, to me, is a really interesting subject. Really interesting. What happens in that interpretation? What is possible in that interpretation? What am I not aware of in in the hermeneutics of my existence? So one of the people that explored this a little bit was Heidegger, the philosopher, the German philosopher, and he he wrote um, in a very famous text called Being and Time that he uh, wrote. An interpretation, he wrote, is never a presupposition presuppositionless apprehending of something presented to us. An interpretation is never a presuppositionless apprehending of something presented to us. If, when was when one is engaged in a particular kind of interpretation, um, uh, one likes one would like to appeal to what is just there, what's what is standing there. Um, then one finds that what stands there in the first instance is nothing other than the seemingly obvious, undiscussed assumption of the person who does the interpreting. Yes? So he's just saying a different word what I've been harping on about for quite a while. Um, but we see our uh, unde- seemingly obvious, undiscussed assumptions. We perceive that's what we, uh, so to speak, introject that into our perceptions. Or let's say that that's part of the fabrication of our perceptions. So the hermeneutical circle. I talked about that once. I think uh, I can't remember what retreat it was, but um, the hermeneutical circle um, is never purely philological. Um, Let's skip a bit and say, um, it's not simply a movement between the parts and the whole of a text or what is presented in existence before us as an object. So we figure out what this what this uh, means in relation to a whole because we figure out the whole and there's a, a kind of mutual um, fitting together of the whole uh, or an attempt at mutually fitting together the whole and the parts and what they mean. I can't. In, the hermeneutical circle is the problem of I can't interpret uh, the parts unless I have an overall idea of what the whole means, and but I can't interpret the whole until I've interpreted the parts, whether that's a text or parts of existence or whatever. But he's but Heidegger's saying here it's actually more than that. It's more than a kind of um, scientific jigsaw. Uh, it's uh, what he calls an ontological movement between um, the text or the object and our situation as interpreters of it. And this was all elaborated by a, a, another philosopher called Gadamer, Hans-Georg Gadamer, um, which again I, I find really interesting, really important. We bring ideas to objects. We can't help do that. 
but in experiencing and in opening up our experience, um, the uh, objects that we have brought ideas to, the perceptions that we have brought ideas to, the sense of things that we have brought ideas to, open up our ideas, give us our ideas back, generate ideas back. I mean, it's not really that dualistic, but we throw something in and something is thrown back, back at us. Can we see body as um, uh, in the realm of hermeneutics like everything else? as a, an object for interpretation, um, an aspect of existence that, uh, like a sacred text, is open to interpretation. And like we talked about in the hermeneutics and the midrashic condition and all that, it's open, it's flexible, it's mu- multiply interpretable. If it matters, if it matters to you, if it matters to the interpreter, if it matters to the, to the one who is sensing, body, a sacred text. What might that mean? Body as uh, amenable to this kind of infinite richness of um, sensing and interpretation and dialogue. got an email from someone I'd like to share it to you. It's a report about her practice and um, it's, it's, it's really rich and partly why I'd like to share it is because of what we're talking about right now but there's so much in it so I'll draw attention to um, uh, so much in, in terms of describing really skillful responsive, pra- responsive practice that I'll, I'll um, highlight some of that. Um, so she wrote I was, she was on retreat, and uh, this is a kind of report post, post a fairly long retreat. Um, <clears throat> I was sitting doing the releasing clinging practice. Okay, you've heard me talk about that just, just again and again. Noticing clinging, releasing it, noticing clinging, releasing it. I think I call it the, the, the dukkha, dukkha method too. Um, and it's a way of, of re- it's a very lovely practice uh, that opens up, uh, you know, the, the unfabricating and the understanding of emptiness and brings with it real softness and loveliness and healing. So I was sitting doing the releasing clinging practice and sat for the 45 minutes without moving and felt very still and peaceful and comfortable. So I continued to sit. And when most of the people left the hall, I had this kinesthetic sense of a field of energy, a kind of net or of, of soft web-like material that covered me and the hall and all the people in the hall. So already we're in the realm of um, uh, uh, energetic energy body and, and uh, experience and image of materiality, if you like, on the edge of all that. I could feel it, she continues, but I knew it was so light that it was only because I was very sensitive that I could feel it. So she's aware of the mind state, and and there's this real sensitivity that I could feel it glistening. She says it was uh, it was gossamer, very delicate but very potent, sublime and powerful. It felt really special. I was a bit taken aback by it, but then then I felt a very faint kinesthetic sense that I had a nun's habit on, and then she uh, has pasted in a delightful picture. <laughs> of uh, a nun, I have no idea what order that is or anything, but it's a very um, pretty far out looking nun's hat. Um, 
actually something like that with the picture, uh, which really surprised me and amused me because of the funny hat. Um, I'm not even going to try and describe the hat, but but it was rather beautiful, she says. Along with the feeling of being being a nun was this complete devotion to you. She's writing this to me, and... um, and she's explained that I am, uh, I, of, she has many, many images, lots, lots of rich images. Some of the images that she has, some of the imaginal images that she has are people that she knows, um, like we've explained as a possibility. So I'm one of those people. And in relation to me, she has um, quite a few different kinds of images, very different. And uh, so there was this feeling of being a nun and this complete devotion to you, the image of you. She's very aware of image as image. There is not um, this kind of uh, reification or concretization or grasping or, or clinging there. So it's an image and it's just um, uh, something that's possible in that, uh, it possibly gives rise to the, the soulfulness and the soul making with the awareness of the imaginal way and all that. She's made very clear and she's very aware of. This is the image of you as Buddha. Uh, and she says, I'm sure you remember, I have several image of you, images of you, and one, one is of you as Buddha. This image is wrapped up in your Dharma. So when I say I'm devoted to you, she says, it is to you and all that you are for me in this way. You represent practice, soul-making, etc. So she's explaining that. Um, I know, obviously, that you are more than that, so... You know, she's not reducing me to this. She knows that I have a human side and all that, of course. Um, she's not identifying me in this Buddha image, thankfully. Um, I know, obviously, that you are more than that, and I have several images of you, she's repeating. But this one is very prominent um, at the moment, uh, and then along with some other images she, she described, we won't go into here. Um, she continues, so it felt like you were there in the hall, sitting at the front by the statues, but you weren't a visual image at all. Again, all this has so so much um, possible teaching in it. Not a visual image here. What kind of image? It was like an impression of you, like the space had your imprint or something. Your essence was there. It was really ethereal, but at the same time very powerful, strong and tangible. It didn't make sense at all, but it did make sense. So can you hear how, how much is here, just in, in the words that she's using to describe this experience, how many elements of what she describes are, are things we've touched on in the teaching? Um, doesn't have to be visual. It, uh, you know, there's going to be some doubt sometimes. It kind of makes sense and it kind of doesn't. Uh, all of that. Um, my devotion was coming out in a strong feeling of energy leaving my body and going to you, and it was delightful and energizing. I really enjoyed giving my full devoted energy to you. It was as if there was a space left after giving all my energy that was very quickly filled with a sublime warm love, an unconditional love, and then the sense was of devotion and compassion. It felt sacred and very special and divine. I was divine. Again, there's this um, uh, uh, inclusion, this spreading of the soul-making dynamic of the sensing the soul to include self and other. Um, As we said before, there's not as well um, 
importantly, as I said, for the balance and the health here, it's not just that she's seeing me as divine uh, and not herself. Um, there's the as as things evolve, there's that I was divine, you were divine, and it felt as if our divines were in communion, our divinities were in communion. Um, now she's describing something that took um, place over over several days, so that's one one period there, um, and then uh, she went for an interview with um, a teacher, in this case Kirsten, and she said, then I explained the bit about the nun to Kirsten. And Kirsten asked lots of questions, and in my explaining, it came out that I felt my hands had some sort of healing power. Um, so again, sometimes talking with other people, sometimes in the temenos around images, it can um, draw out the power of the image, ignite it further, help it to become fully alive, and actually uh, give birth to or create slash discover other other dimensions or aspects of the image. So partly she's um, she also expressed her appreciation of the, the skillful way that Kirsten was asking and particularly when um, she was trying to explain something and making a gesture with her hand and Kirsten pointed pointed out the gesturing so what does that gesture mean? Um, so she says it came out that I felt my hands had some sort of healing power. Like if I cut my hands around someone's face, like you might, might imagine a nun doing to a small child, it would make them feel better. That in the touching, there would be some tangible love transmitted. Um, and then again, this is over, over um, some little time on retreat. Then I had a wave of several, or several waves of hindrances, restlessness and aversion. Then I read the bit in your book, and to my great surprise, they went away easily, the hindrances. But then came a huge wave of grief for a relative that had died recently, and my mum, who uh, had also died some few years ago, and the life I've wasted. It felt as if the grief was right behind the hindrances, as if they were connected. And then she said, and this is my first question, do you think they were linked? Do the hindrances often mask some something else? Um, and, and yes, they do. Sometimes, indeed, they mask deeper emotions that we're not quite in touch with yet, we're not uh, kind of holding back a little bit. And sometimes the hindrances, sometimes the hindrances are masking uh, a deeper emotion that, that's calling for a different kind of attention and connection to an opening with and healing, uh, etc., um, so then uh, this grief came and then in the sitting I very softly wiped away the flood of tears with my hands and my hands became the nun's hands and I cupped my face so she's actually doing this in the sitting she's moving her body out of the still meditation posture and cupping her face um, with her physical hands but they're the nun's hands I cupped with the healing uh, that comes out of them I cupped my face and then this crack appeared it was like there was a sliver of space that allowed the love to come in, the love from her hands, to come in, the love to come in so that there was the grief and the love existing together. The love for lost ones, including myself. And I could hold this deep loss and the love together. It was really special and wonderful. Um, so again, there's so much here about dukkha and soul making. We talked about how healing images can be. And in this case, it's a kind of level of grief that the image, and particularly the bodily images here, um, and, and the ideas of the body that are implicit in all this, um, th this was what allowed a kind of level of healing to uh, come in, uh, you know, 
to start a level of healing, or, or perhaps you know, who knows where, where it will go. But um, uh, and then she said, um, I have I've had trouble making my mum an image, as it's difficult to bring her to mind without being overwhelmed with grief, because her mum died, as I said, a few years ago. But sometime after this. Uh, she spontaneously came as an image and helped me when I was feeling doubt, giving me encouragement. So again, this this person, like many of you listening, is someone who has doubts. And doubts, um, as many people do, and doubts about um, their practice and um, themselves and all kinds of doubts. So I, I'm partly pointing that out. Say, if you're listening to this and think, well, I'm, that sounds amazing. I'm sure she's a, like this or like that. This is someone who has doubts as well. Um, so um, the image of her mum as well was kind of enabled through the healing that came out through the other image um, that in, involved uh, um, devotion and also the different sense of energy and different sense of body. Um, and then, her, then the image of her mum was sort of brought alive and able to kind of communicate with her. And then she says, Later I did your practice of Eros and the Brahma Viharas with a difficult person, and I chose my mum as the beloved. Again, I don't need to repeat it, but I'll say again, Eros doesn't mean necessarily sexual, so there's an erotic connection, because her mum is image, is imaginal, and with the imaginal wrapped up in that is Eros. So her mum is the beloved as image, and then she's doing this, she's having um, this difficulty with someone, and there's aversion, and and all kinds of things, fear and judgment, whatever, and uh, so the the erotic beloved um, imaginal other, in this case her mum, um, uh, came and uh, she used that in in a Brahmavihara meditation, um, uh, which helped to open and support the metta and compassion to this person that she was struggling with. So one image has brought another, the image of her mom, to life. It's it's enabled it to come through where it wasn't so able for, and it's given it life and potency. And she said, and and that broke the spell of the ill will that I hadn't been able to shift. It shifted like magic, she said. <clears throat> so, as I said, there's a lot there um, in, in terms of just so many aspects of, of working this kind of way in terms of the, the willingness to experiment, the flexibility, the responsiveness, the, um, the care, the sensitivity of attention, all, all kinds of things. Very, very rich and, and beautiful um, report. Um, but implicit with the images that she describes and the sensing with soul that she describes are ideas. Ideas about bodies, hands that heal, her hands, her physical hands touching her, that can heal on different levels. Um, ideas about energy and this kind of net of energy that's kind of touching and connecting everyone in the hall. Um, ideas also about the locus of personhood. So one of the things about the body is that we tend, very understandably, to consider it, that's where someone is. And that's kind of where their consciousness is. And sometimes we say it's in their brain, or whatever, if we're getting quite narrowly material. But in that image that she had of me, it was not a visual image. It wasn't that I was there, it was like a presence was there. And it was somewhere near the front of the hall. 
and but it was there. Um, where is the personhood? She knows that I wasn't there, but it was like I was there. Where is a person? Where is a consciousness? There's other ways to open this up. Um, one of them is through the sixth jhana. If you spend a lot of time with that, the whole notion of where consciousness is and whose it is um, gets really opened up in terms of the, the potential ways of um, perceiving and conceiving of that. But also through sensing the soul and imaginal practice. Body as locus of personhood or locus of personhood not necessarily being uh, limited to a physical material uh, location. There's also ideas here about um, communication, communication that can take place between um, uh, me and her, and between her mom and her. So again, um, regular um, experiences of sensing the soul. It wouldn't happen if it was just one, one or two, but regular. It starts to um, open up the, the 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 sense of the body. If we're staying with body right now um, and and matter, the, and and then the conception. It gets pushed on. It gets questioned. It gets expanded, and it gets made plural. So. Um, Again, pointing out that where, wherever there's image, there's idea involved. So the ideation or the concept is an element of the sensing with soul because it's part of the uh, eros psychologos uh, structure, if you like, of soul making. Ideas are wrapped up in images. They go with images. <coughs> That's something we'll again stress again, but... So what is it to approach or see the body as uh, hermeneutically and with the spirit of uh, in in the in the poise of uh, uh, um, uh, a disciple, if you like, someone who to whom the interpretation of this text matters, body as sacred text. And it matters. I'm not just a uh, cold objective. Um, I'm not approaching it with just the cold, object, so-called objectivity of science. Body and world are sacred texts. So we've talked about um, texts and uh, a little bit uh, last night with the um, potential, and in the past as well, the potential sort of um, richness of meanings, again, plurality of meanings, and playing with words, and playing with etymologies, and playing with sounds, and uh, um, text as, as, as uh, sacred sound, and the numerology, and all of that. We talked on the previous retreat, I think it was the Reenchanting the Cosmos retreat, um, that, that gave attention to the mudra, hand posture, and general body posture, and movement of, of the body, um, as uh, to, 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 to um, enact uh, movements of the body and postures of the body, and to sense those movements and postures of the body um, with soul, 
sensing the holiness there and the multidimensional um, aspect of that. Body and world as sacred texts. And in the spirit of participation, the interpreter is, is the interpreter's participation is part of the text. It's participation. So that moving the body and um, reading it this way, if you like, sensing it with soul, is part of creating, discovering what the body is, what the body can be. And I think it was the same retreat, and we talked about, um, uh, very briefly, we, talk, we talked about language, and we had a guided meditation with the Om Mani Padmi Hum mantra, um, and uh, actually starting to perceive that uh, those syllables of the mantra as if they were um, uh, infusing the fabric of the cosmos, a jeweline world of these um, radiant, mystical uh, syllables of the holy mantra. That is the fabric of the world at one level. Primordial sound, divine and cosmic powers in the sound. Could we uh, not just practice chanting that way and then everything that came out of that, if you remember that guided meditation, the... uh, the, the meditation moved beyond sound to just a, 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 an all-embracing perception of things. But could we actually practice listening uh, this way? Listening, and what are we listening to? You think, I'm listening right now, I'm listening to the words, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. But could we listen to speech and perhaps hear and understand and also listen to the sound? What is communicated? Is it just information? One person tells the other, the salt's over there, or something very complicated, or whatever, or I feel good, I feel bad, or yesterday I did this, or my story is this. What is communicated? There's so many different levels, so many different dimensions of what's communicated through speech, potentially, what's heard through speech. Can I practice, perhaps practice with another, practice with another consciously, deliberately, or practice with another, um, just whoever, whoever one is listening to, practice hearing um, the meaning and the divine music, the mantra, which, uh, as I say in Tantra, hear all sounds as divine speech, as mantra, hear all sounds as mantra. It's a tantric instruction. Can we? Can you actually practice listening that way? Whether it's to your friend, whether it's to um, someone else. Mantra, divine speech, incantation, hearing the music in things, hearing the prayer in things. All sound is prayer. We touched again on the past retreat. I think it was, again, the re-enchanting the cosmos. I can't remember. What does prayer mean? Because that's another, we can have an idea, uh, where we can have an I- another instance where we can have an idea of prayer, and it's quite um, narrow. I'm asking for something from some kind of bigger power or higher power or whatever, and I hope that they give it to me. Prayer can mean that, but it has a real range of possibility. It's a word that once that word starts getting involved, 
um, in the soul-making dynamic, that really opens up. Prayer becomes something limitless in its possibilities. Prayer as blessing. Every prayer is a blessing. And so, if this, what I'm hearing, in speech, but maybe also in any sound, the wind, the birds, even right now, the sound, maybe can't hear it on the recording, the sound of the electrical hum from the heater beside me in this freezing house. <laughs> um, uh, divine music, divine speech, incantation, spell, music, prayer, blessing. What is blessing? What does that mean? If it's the divine blessing, all creation, that includes me, that includes everything around me, that includes this room, this space, that includes you. These sounds now are the sounds of the divine blessing all creation. It's the prayer of the divine. But all creation is not other than the divine. So the divine is in some ways blessing itself. And even blessing its blessing. Blessing its blessing. And when there's a sensing the soul, when there's that kind of opening and attunement, you can hear this in everything. You can hear this way as a practice. So there are ideas too of language and sound. We can open those up. So what is being communicated? What is language? What is the, these sounds that I'm hearing? What are they? What's going on there? I learned recently about something called yoik. I think that's how you say it. Anyone know what that is? Um, it's apparently um, the uh, belongs to the Sami peoples, and uh, it's a word that belongs to the Sami people. And it's um, I'll explain what it is. There, Sami peoples are um, indigenous to Lapland. Uh, Northern Finland, Norway, parts of Russia, um, so those kind of no very northern um, peoples, and they sing yoik. Um, but in in singing a yoik song, um, it's not that they so they might sing a yoik song, and if there's lyrics or whatever, then you say, um, oh, is is the story of a wolf, or it's about a wolf. But when you understand. Uh, when you ask what, what they mean by it, or what's going on there, it's not that they sing about this or that, about an animal, or a person, or a place, um, or the land. It's rather that they conceive it, their idea uh, with Yoik, is that they sing the land. They, they don't sing about the land, they sing the land. Remember that? image, I, I was saying, the bird song uh, was singing and weaving my energy body, my body in some kind of very healing way. The birds were singing me. And so the yoik uh, sings the land. It invokes uh, or ev uh, um, 
rather than evokes, if you like. It invokes the land. Is that the right? I'm not sure if that's the right English. They sing the land. With their song, they weave its being. So there, when, when, they're, um, when they have that kind of um, space in their logos, then um, entering into that and singing that way and having that ideation, there's a deep sense and um, uh, concept there and, and framework there of participation. They're singing. They sing the land. They sing the animals. They sing uh, being. It's, they sing things into being. They weave into being. Participation um, of their own uh, creativity, if you like, or, or their own uh, voice in manifestation, in, in, in uh, cosmopoesis. So there's a kind of intimacy there, uh, supported by that, um, and involved in that. It must be more than just, um, uh, say, another idea, which is a recognition of material equality. It's earth element, I'm earth element, and earth element is perceived um, uh, flatly, or it's atoms and I'm atoms. There's an intimacy there um, that's got a whole other richness to it. And then the land, or whatever they're singing there, that land and the animals, um, uh, must surely appear in certain ways to them. Again, dependent. The appearance is going to be dependent on the way of looking, on on the and on the idea in the way of looking. Actually, even in in their very conception, it's already conceived um, of as not simply and objectively pre-existing. The land pre-exists, and then we may or may not sing this funny song or whatever. It's already implicit that somehow I'm participating in this land, but the participation is a whole other level than just I farm the land or whatever, or I breathe the air. And, and surely such a view and such a practice makes the kind of perspectives and intentions that would lead to, say, strip mining or any kind of um, disconnectedly extractivist orientation, it would make it impossible. Apparently this yoik, uh, the, the oral traditions uh, of, of the uh, Sami people say yoik um, was learnt from the, um, or the gate was given by the fairies and the elves of the Arctic lands, uh, gave yoik to the, the Sami people, Sami people. Um, so it's a very, very old musical tradition, probably one of the uh, oldest in living musical traditions in Europe. When the Christians came there, they condemned it as sinful, uh, sinful to sin yoik. It's a sin. It was prohibited, um, perhaps because it had some kind of association with shamans and um, pre-Christian sort of mythology ritual, rituals. Um, and so, also because yoiking uh, was said to resemble magic spells, and you can see that it, it has some of that idea of magic, of spells, of incantation, invocation. in creating and discovering sacred sound there uh, nature is made sacred in, in a whole different way and there is magic there so wrapped up in that there's ideas of earth of song, of sound 
and again of communication. Ideas of communication. Some of you will have heard of the three bodies of the Buddha. It's a very um, common uh, Mahayana teaching, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya. I'm not going to go too much into that now. I've touched on some of it just a little bit in the past, I think. Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. That word, um, Nirmana, of the last one, Nirmanakaya, uh, Nirmana means actually a magical creation. Um, sometimes it's given a very um, idealist slant, non-material slant. So a magical creation um, is is something that has no material basis. Um, so this is one of the bodies of the Buddha. In Mahayana teaching, it's like the Buddha is really the primordial Buddha who is manifesting uh, a, a body that we perceive as physical at some point in history um, uh, and uh, uh, manifesting that um, uh, it, it actually is not material, it's a kind of magical emanation, some people, some Mahayana teachers would explain it that way. But the word um, nirmana means um, uh, forming or making or creating or creation or building or a composition like a musical composition or something like a work, like a work of art. Um, and uh, also, uh, what can we say? What else in the etymology there? Um, a transformation, that would be another word. Um, so that the nirmanakaya can mean the body of transformations or the body of magic transformation. Um, when we. Um, translate, when I have touched on, uh, when I have and other Mahayana teachers uh, some touch on these three uh, bodies of the Buddha, of the primordial Buddha, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, um, they can be seen as, uh, especially the Dharmakaya and Sambhogakaya, they can be um, construed as pervasive. In a way they're non-spatial, they're not really anywhere in space, but they pervade everything and all space. So the Sambhogakaya is, um, one way I translate it, is the Mundus Imaginalis. It's that whole um, um, body in the sense of collection. We talked about Kaya, uh, remember, in the talk on what is awakening at the beginning. This, what does Kaya mean? It can mean physical body. It can also mean just a collection. Um, and so the Sambhogakaya is just the, the world, really, the collection of things, um, in the Mundus Imaginalis. Um, and with the energy body and all that. Um, and the Dharmakaya, as, uh, again, has a lot of different meanings, but again, as something, in some sense, kind of pervasive. It's, it's in some sense, everything is the manifestation of Dharmakaya. Nirmanakaya is often conceived more uh, in, in a certain locus of personhood, a historical Buddha. Um, but we can also hear it or interpret it as equally pervasive, like the other two Kayas. So that uh, Nirmanakaya, in, and if we translate Kaya more pervasively as the other two Kayas, then it becomes this world of uh, material appearances. And that can be the Nirmanakaya, and we can um, uh, 
the parallel I'm making is the world, this world of matter, as the world of um, magical transformation, the world of magical creation, um, etc. The world of uh, yes, magical transformation. I talked about Amitabha the other day, and how his sort of he represented in the five Buddha families. He represents or is connected with the aggregate of perception, a third aggregate. Uh, there's another Buddha Vairochana, um, and in in the five families of Buddhas in the Mahayana, and Vairochana is like another kind of primordial Buddha, and he represents the bodily. Uh, ag- the aggregate of the body of Rupa, um, but uh, in a way, it's the it's the purified aggregate of bodily form. The pure. So when we're talking about in in the primordial Buddha sense, it's really it's it's this level of the aggregate that goes with it. That's this. It's another dimension. Put it that way. And um, in in some ways, it's the idea or the principle of spatial extension, or of space as the Precondition of all bodily existence. Um, so, what does that mean? It means this space that we're in can be um, sensed into, conceived again. We're kind of injecting an idea um, that this space is somehow um, uh, a manifestation of a primordial Buddha, of the primordial Buddha. The space where bodies exist and, and seem to move, where matter matter exists, uh, is uh, the body, if you like, or the essence. Its essence is 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 Vairochana, primordial Buddha Vairochana. Sacred texts, the body and the world, sacred texts. What is a sacred text? The uh, Pali Canon Suttas um, and the Mahayana Suttas all begin, some, and some Tantras as well, um, Mahayana Tantras, um, begin um, in Pali. Ewan Misuttam, thus have I heard, some of you will know this. Ewan Misuttam, in Sanskrit, Ewan Maya Shuttam, thus have I heard. So, what is it again? What is it to hear a sacred text? Thus have I heard. Can I hear that thus that I've heard? Can I hear that poetically? We read it as a kind of formulaic introduction to suttas in, 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 in Buddhism. Thus have I heard. Thus am I hearing. I. So, um, it might be that someone, in, let's say, in a state of consciousness, we could say, um, or let's say this: what, 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 what? Uh, again, what uh, 
qualities need to be present in the soul for me to, let's say this as a poetic uh, phrase, to hear sacred texts. What, what needs to be there um, to uh, hear in this way that we hear sacred texts? Uh, and here actually might be more than just the or, this, uh, auditory sense. And to interpret sacred text. We already said mattering. Uh, something about purity, I think, as well. So someone in a certain um, state of consciousness, one could say purify, but we can ask what does that mean, um, they may uh, hear teachings imaginally, um, or see an image, or behold a story, or um, a gathering of angels or bodhisattvas, like are described in Mahayana texts, all of that. Um, but these teachings uh, may also be, just one hears them in the wind, and they may be non-verbal. So this in the sensing the soul, it's as if the wind uh, can be at times, the wind or the birds are, um, are, are teaching. Their, their, their sound is, is sacred text, is scripture. But again, it might not be um, that what's translatable there is, is in the form of information. Like when you read a sutta, the Buddha was so and so, and this happened and that happened. The teaching can be non-verbal. Not, it's not a matter of bits of information being communicated. But something about purity uh, needs to be there. To um, allow us to trust this as teaching. What does purity mean? Um, one possibility is that one is purified by insight into emptiness. Uh, actually, it's interesting, there's a, uh, when one's insight into emptiness is very deep, there is at that time a feeling of purity in the energy body. It's one of the things it, it does. Um, one may uh, purify be feel oneself pure or another pure in a moment where there's um, this uh, seeing all appearances as divine in a kind of um, mimicry of a Buddha's uh, ultimate gnosis, a Buddha's jhana, but knowing that the subject and object there, the appearances that are divine and the consciousness that senses that way and perceives that way, neither have inherent existence and they're non-dual, they're connected. And one can, um, if you like, mimic that Buddha's jnana, gnosis. Or, um, again, those elements that move the imagination more into the realm, in, in, in the direction of the fully imaginal, or authentically imaginal. Um, this also is purifying, partly because it brings in this imaginal middle way and the non-clinging, and the craving goes to eros, etc. And it's not so much about myself. There's that what we call the fullness of intention. All this is is kind of renders the soul at that time um, in different ways, uh, renders it what we might call pure. 
pure to hear a certain way and to trust a certain teaching that one might receive um, on the wind, through the land, through the birds, whatever it is. Um, Sometimes when we hear um, uh, you purify the mind or the heart and then you perceive something um, and then the purity allows you to perceive what is true. That's purity allows you to attain to the truth. If you remember that uh, what we talked about with Foucault pointing out that the, um, that's what changed with the uh, advent of, of modernity is that we no longer have that notion about truth that it takes um, the pure the purification of the subject um, but it might be also that purity uh, uh, could be itself um, uh, a purification mean a purification or involve a purification from um, all attachment to any notion of truth. So that one is free to play with perception and with perspectives and ideas and ways of looking in this kind of pluralistic understanding we've been talking about. And in a way, why shouldn't the, 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 the teachings uh, that are uh, the sacred texts heard the sacred texts heard um, in this way, in that sort of state, be trusted and given, if you like, um, authority as much as um, another text. Well, they, they become iconic for us, and that's part of their imaginal nature. As I said, hearing... Um, Hearing a sacred text and ewam maya shrutam is, you know, uh, in sensing the soul, sometimes there's this synesthesia that I talked about. So there's a fusion of different um, senses or interconnection of different senses. And sometimes I feel like I'm hearing through my eyes, so to speak. I'm aware of the dangers in all this, of course, say, oh, this person says they heard this teaching, whatever, and they do translate it into some kind of information that they then want to persuade others of the truth about, and then they claim um, a, a, a power position in a hierarchy because of that, and there's all kinds of abuses of power. We are the ones who have access to the truth, etc. But if the whole hermeneutics um, of, of this kind of thing remains open, like the Midrashic uh, approach to the Old Testament and, and the other sacred scriptures, or like um, reading Tantra sometimes, it's quite open. Then, then we're in a different situation. So all these um, practices that I've touched on and all of this sensing the soul um, involves the, the sense of the middle way. Um, uh, this imaginal middle way between real and not real, neither real nor not real. 
um, and or and or a sense of the deep emptiness of it all. Sometimes that kind of ontology is 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 kind of um, moves, shifts a little bit, opens a little bit more to a sense of of the plural nature of things and the plural plurality of truths through participation. But it's it's as if, um, as I said at the beginning um, of this this part of the talk, it's as if the um, the sense of what is real, the conception of what is real and what is true gets opened it, 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 it's impacted through sensing the soul but in some way or other it's either um, this middle way neither real nor not real and or the sense of the pl- plural nature of truth truths, of reality there's one more thing I'd like to touch on before finishing is that so there's this plurality or middle way um, uh, understanding that, that's uh, infused in all these possibilities and experiences and practices I'm talking about, but also infused in all these approaches and possibilities is eros and love and grace as three, uh, for example, three elements of uh, aspects of the imaginal that we touched on that, that will be there with all this thing, all these experiences. But also one that perhaps I haven't mentioned so much: um, uh, praise, praise, and uh, the attitude of praise. Also, one of its elements is is humility. I have to have humility, and I will have an organic, natural, spontaneous humility in relation to what I'm praising. We talked about humility before. But in all this, hearing sacred texts or um, Singing the world, the earth, the animals into being. Singing the animals in all this. Listening to the divine speech, the divine mantra in sound. All of this praise is infused in it. It's infused with praise. And praise is healing. Praise is healing. So again, this is not abstract. We're not talking about ideas that are abstract. Um, there's something that really touches the soul here. You know, the word pian, it's, a, it's not that commonly used um, in English. P-A-E-A-N. Pian is, uh, what it means is um, a song of praise. And... Um, it's uh, a song or an ode of praise, and uh, it's it's originally um, uh, a song of praise to Apollo, because uh, Peon uh, was another name, uh, an epithet of Apollo, and Apollo was a healing god, among other things. So Peon is a, a Peon is a is a is a a poem or a song of praise, and it's related to another word, Peony. P O E N Y, which is actually um, some of you will know this. It's a it's a plant uh, with with beautiful crimson flowers, and the word peony, the English word peony, is from French via Latin apparently, um, peonia, P O E N I A, which means healing, uh, because the plant was uh, thought to have healing um, healing powers.
Pion, this um, uh, Apollo, was the uh, physician of the gods. So, a pian, a praise, what we utter in praise, and utter might be through our speech, but it might be through our gesture or our being, is healing. It's a kind of healing. Certainly healing of the praise. We talked about the tikkun olam, the healing of the world through my perception, through my action, through my articulation. And it's also, praise is also a healing of the praiser, the one who praises. Praising heals the one who praises. So again, ideas that we're talking about infused in all this and that are getting stretched in all this, they are not we're not talking about them abstractly or as abstractions. They bring ways of looking and those ways of looking um, involve our soul, they move our soul, they open our soul. They open our hearts, they involve our hearts, they demand our hearts. And they they uh, they in opening up the sensing of soul they are soul making. Anything but abstract. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.